You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, little bitch. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Stay out of the train! I don't know who you are. Why so sick? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's the Call me Mr. Boy's best friend. Is his mother. You have no style. You can bark all day, little dog. Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory, a weekly film history podcast. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. I want to start today off by thanking everyone who listened last week and sent me nice messages. To those of you who know me personally and asked who I hired to record this, it's me. This is what I sound like when I'm being a professional lady. We're very much in the experimental phase of the podcast, and I've been spitballing a couple of ideas for some possible shorter segments down the line. For those of you who may be listening to this, and don't work in the entertainment industry, or in the case of some of my friends, you're the only one in the group who doesn't, and your friends use a phrase or acronym when talking about their jobs that you don't know, but they assume that everyone should know. Tired of that sidelong glance? Or maybe there's an effect you've always been curious about in a movie, but never figured out how they managed to make it happen. Want me to explain it? Send me a message and I might break it down on a future episode. Let's get to this week's topic. Last week, we ended on film during World War II. Today, we're picking up where we left off and going all the way up to the modern era. Like last week, we will be primarily focusing on the Hollywood end of things. Next week, we'll go into some international movements and their histories as well. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. General Harvard, I'm sure this occasion must be as gratifying to you as it is to me and to the rest of us. Ever since you joined the Radio Corporation of America some 14 years ago, you have heard us talk about this new child television. You've watched it come from the cradle and learned to creep. And today, I'm glad to say, marks a new epoch in the development of this child. I suppose it really climaxes in the fact that you and I are the first actors on the television stage. It's always a great While the majority of the rest of the world began rebuilding what had been destroyed after six years of war, Hollywood found itself with several new adversaries. Suburban living surged 43% after World War II, and the lack of transportation into the urban areas meant that many consumers looked for entertainment alternatives closer to home. Very close, in fact. Enter the television. If you were paying attention last week, you know that 1948 saw a seismic shift in how films were produced and distributed, with the verdict of the U.S. versus Paramount Pictures, Inc. The ruling declared that many of the film studios were in violation of the Sherman antitrust laws, with their ownerships of both studios and movie theaters. Studios were forced to sell their theaters, and the practice of block booking was finally put to an end. 
having lost their primary source of income and control over the entertainment medium as television rose in popularity, the studios faltered. By 1948, there were four television networks, each with their own lineups of primetime programming. At the time, broadcast TV was free, making it difficult for the movie studios to convince people to leave their homes to be entertained when they could just as easily do so in their own living rooms. Ridiculed as a fad, not unlike the motion pictures themselves in their early days, the studio heads weren't threatened by television at first. They dealt with competitors before, most notably the radio, and always seemed to come out on top. Jack Warner of Warner Brothers famously hated the television and wouldn't even allow one to be used as a prop in any Warner Brothers film. Unfortunately for Jack and the other movie moguls, TV was here to stay and remains, as I'm sure you all know, as one of their main adversaries. Fear of communist subversive activities has developed into hysterical frenzy which grows daily. Appointed by Congress to investigate, Chairman Parnell Thomas opens the hearing. He's investigating alleged communist influence and infiltration in the moving picture industry must not be considered or interpreted as an attack on the industry itself. Plagued by post-war labor protests and calls to unionize, the studio heads began to suspect that communism had made its way into Hollywood. As paranoia grew, conservatives in Washington wanted to quote out alleged communists in the mostly liberal Hollywood. Starting in 1947, the House's Un-American Activities Committee, led by conservative Jack McCarthy, the HUAC put Tinseltown in its crosshairs in the early days of what history would call the Red Scare, and began aggressively interrogating its most prominent members in search of communists. Whether out of patriotism or fear, it's hard to say, but Walt Disney, Jack Warner, and SAG president at the time, Ronald Reagan, were some of the many individuals who gave their colleagues up in hearings. As their friends and co-workers were being subpoenaed, the Hollywood 10, as they came to be known, a group of eight screenwriters, one director and one producer, claiming that these hearings violated their First Amendment rights, refused to testify, or when they did, delivered grandiose speeches to the committee. Naturally, they were convicted of obstructing justice and served jail terms. The mounting pressure from Congress compelled 48 motion picture executives from MGM, Columbia, 20th Century Fox, Paramount, Warner Brothers, Universal, the Motion Picture Association of America, and several other companies to issue the Waldorf Statement, declaring that they were patriots and that the Hollywood 10 would not work for their studio unless they were proven innocent of being a communist. Eventually, a list was compiled of 324 names, called the Hollywood Blacklist, which banned producers, screenwriters, actors, and composers on the list from working in motion pictures, despite no real concrete evidence that communist propaganda was being spread in motion pictures in the first place. Some of the writers managed to continue working under pseudonyms, including Dalton Trumbo, a member of the Hollywood 10, who actually won an Oscar whilst blacklisted for 1956's The Brave One under the name Robert Rich. By the early 1960s, 
the ban began to slowly lift, mostly thanks to the downfall of Joseph McCarthy, who had been condemned by his fellow congressmen for his aggressive smear tactics during his HUAC witch hunts. Arthur Miller, a member of the Blacklist, penned the play The Crucible, which, while taking place historically during the Salem witch trials, was actually written as an allegory for McCarthyism and the communist witch hunt that had taken place in Hollywood. Though the era of the Blacklist would come to an end, only about 10% of those that had been named ever returned to working in the motion pictures. The hearings also stagnated the quality of films due to the depletion of many of their deepest and most creative thinkers, leading to mediocre films steeped in old-fashioned values and optimism and fear of being targeted once more. This trend in cinema would more or less remain until rock and roll and the 60s counterculture rose to prominence, rejecting the values of the generation that had come before. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the most important announcement we have ever been privileged to make. This theater is now being ready to present the first motion picture ever filmed in Vista Vision. Vista Vision, the ultimate in film presentation that will thrill all your senses, touch all your emotions with its unbelievable clarity. Still trying to compete with the television, more immersive, wide-angle screens like CinemaScope and VistaVision were experimented with, as well as 3D films and stereo sound. Building on pre-World War I-era Italian styles, films as a whole were made to show more spectacular images with giant set pieces and vibrant costumes and sceneries. You couldn't experience that level of grandeur on the television screen of the day. These trends spread like wildfire on the international film scene as well. In Japan, Akika Kurosawa's films, most notably Seven Samurai and Rashomon, used similar techniques. These films would inspire Western filmmakers and be remade into Westerns several times in the coming decades. In fact, Asian cinema as a whole was in its prime after World War II. Japanese cinema became widely popular. Hiroshi Inagaki's Samurai One, from his incredibly popular Samurai trilogy, took the Oscar for Best Foreign Film in 1955. India was producing an average of 200 films per year, the most popular of which was the Apu trilogy by Satyajit Ray, which would inspire the trend of the coming-of-age film of the 1960s and 70s in Hollywood. A little more on Asian cinema next week. By the end of the 1950s, the spectacle films were becoming tedious for some. In France, a film magazine ran by young film critics called The Cahier du Cinema began writing scathing articles about the mostly unimaginative films being put out by the French filmmakers. The French at this time, at least at the larger studios, were primarily making films that mimicked the highly successful Hollywood studio system, who were dominating the market with their six to 800 films coming out each year. These critics didn't like the dumbing down of an art form that they cared for deeply and wanted higher concept pictures like the ones made before World War II. By the end of the decade, two of their most prominent writers, Jean-Luc Godard 
and Francois Truffaut made their directorial debuts. Their films relied more on real locations instead of those constructed on a backlot. Truffaut's film, The 400 Blows, would go on to win Best Director at the Cannes Film Festival in 1959. These films would also inspire the French New Wave, more on that next week, a movement that was a drastic shift away from the Hollywood studio system. Similar movements popped up all over the world in places like Japan, Brazil, Spain, England, and of course, the United States. The Hollywood studios caved and began making television shows as well as TV films by the late 1950s. Some studios licensed their library of films out to the stations for broadcast. Others still turned their back on the Hayes production code and made risque films, something absolutely prohibited on television by the FCC. As the decades progressed, the Hayes Code, or the Production Code, had been widely disregarded. In 1966, the Motion Picture Association of America, a trade association which represented licensed motion picture companies, hired former special assistant to President Lyndon B. Johnson, Jack Valenti, to lead their organization. Two years later, he exchanged the now weakened production code with a voluntary rating system allowing audiences to be aware of the content they were about to view before going to the theater. The original ratings were G, general audiences, M, mature audiences, R, restricted for under 16s unless with an adult, and X, no one under 16 admitted. The system would shift here and there over the next 40 years into the rating system we're familiar with today, the major addition being PG-13 in the 1980s to accommodate films that definitely weren't R, but had received complaints from people for being more violent than their PG rating might suggest. For example, Poltergeist, the film known for having actual skeletons floating in a pool during its climactic scene, was originally rated PG. By the late 1960s, an entire generation had grown up with a television in their home, and it was reflected at the box office as movie ticket sales continued to decline. People didn't want to go to the theaters to see the same old song and dance, sometimes literally, when they could do that at home. Production costs were skyrocketing, Film directors were moving away from Hollywood, causing their price tags to go up if they were to return to Hollywood and make a film for a studio. Adding to this, actors and actresses, now independent of the studios, had vastly more control over their projects and, by extension, their salaries. Studios needed to find good movies made on the cheap. I just want to say one word to you. Just one word. Yes, sir. Are you listening? Yes, sir, you. Plastics. Exactly how do you mean? There's a great future in plastics. Think about it. Will you think about it? As yes, post-World War II cinema began influencing a new crop of American filmmakers, a slew of independent features like The Graduate, Easy Rider, and Midnight Cowboy, the only Best Picture winner to be rated X, 
became immensely successful, showing the studios that an original script that spoke to the younger generations could be profitable. Unlike the audiences of the 1930s and 40s, this new generation didn't want to see unobtainable glamour. They wanted to see themselves reflected back to them on that silver screen. Bonnie and Clyde, for example, was incredibly popular with a younger crowd, baffling the older studio heads, who had always made films trying to reflect American values. They didn't understand, they couldn't understand, the popularity of the films, and some took it as a sign to retire, and others still were removed by their board of directors. You know, this used to be a hell of a good country. I can't understand what's going wrong with it. Man, everybody got chicken, that's what happened. Hey, we can't even get into, like, a second-rate hotel. I mean, a second-rate motel, you dig? Don't they think we're gonna cut their throat or something, man? Like, they're scared, man. Oh, they're not scared of you. They're scared of what you represent to them. Amen. All we represent to them, man, is somebody who needs a haircut. Oh, no. What you represent to them is freedom. What the hell's wrong with freedom, man? That's what it's all about. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's what it's all about, all right. But talking about it and being it, that's two different things. I mean, it's real hard to be free when you are bought and sold in the marketplace. In the 60s, frustrated by the violence in the world, political unrest, police violence, and an unpopular war, Hollywood once again found itself struggling on whether or not to release anti-war films, with the Red Scare still fresh in many of the older members of the industry's minds. This, coupled with the success of independent features, is where the movie brats found their audiences. Directors like Roger Corman, Robert Altman, Brian De Palma, Francis Ford Coppola, and Martin Scorsese now found their projects funded by the major studios. These films were partially characterized by using elements of French and Italian cinema, most notably shooting their projects in the real world as much as possible versus a backlot. The remaining older studio heads probably preferred this by and large, not wanting these new long-haired hippie filmmakers darkening their backlot stores. Famously made under the influence of illicit drugs, their stories, while creative, were also incredibly expensive. Due to the unpredictability of the day's moviegoer, these films were huge risks to the studios. As the budgets got bigger and the drugs got stronger, the pressure to succeed at the box office became higher and higher to varying degrees of success. Kamala Duff's The Soul Sisters Answer to James Bond and the most exciting new star in years, Six Feet Two of Dynamite, and it's all stacked. I told you where! Cleopatra Jones. She is sticking her nose in my business, sir. And up against her is the arch enemy, the female successor to Goldfinger, two-time Academy Award winner Shelley Winters as Mommy. In the 1970s, African American cinema began to find a mainstream audience with black exploitation films. These films gave a voice to a community that had been widely ignored by the motion picture industry up until this point, 
and opened up Hollywood for the first time to an entire new generation of Black filmmakers and performers. While there had been exceptions to the rule throughout the years, the roles that were primarily made available to African-American actors were as a subservient to their white co-stars. Historically, from 1919 to 1948, Oscar Michaud made what were referred to as race movies, films that showed the nuance of the black community of the era. Michaud got into filmmaking after seeing Birth of a Nation. As a response, he made the film Within Our Gates in 1920 to detail the horrors of lynching and the hypocrisy of racial purity. While widely ignored by Hollywood, the race movie markets, as they were called at the time, flourished in places like New Jersey and Jacksonville, Florida. During World War II, African Americans who had faced battle in segregated platoons returned home and Hollywood turned their eyes towards the issues surrounding racial segregation. 1949's Home of the Brave dealt with an African American soldier facing racial clout on the front lines of the war. African-American audiences packed the movie houses to see the film. By the 1950s, actors like Dorothy Dandridge and Sidney Poitier had rose to prominence and studios took notice. With the financial successes of film after film coming from these underfunded filmmakers, like 1971's Sweetback's Badass Song, directed by Melvin Van Pebbles, which broke with the conventional black film traditions of the era, portraying assertive masculinity and the stick-it-to-the-man mentality associated with these films, now known as the exploitation genre to this day. Impressed by the success of Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song, MGM-backed independent director Gordon Park's 1971 film Shaft, which did so well financially, it actually saved MGM from bankruptcy. Not to be left out, other studios followed and made films like 1972's Superfly and 1974's Cleopatra Jones. Not for the first time, the studios completely missed the mark on what made these films special to the audiences that packed the theaters to see them and mass produced them many times with white directors at the helm because they were cheap to make. This would, however, lead to a small creative movement in Hollywood known as the L.A. Rebellion, which would give us the likes of John Singleton, Spike Jones, and Julie Dash. Let's not have any last-minute sentimentalism about the killing of a few thieves and anarchists. Do you kill a man yourself, Canton? Mr. Champion, my grandfather was the Secretary of War to Harrison. His brother was a governor of the state of New York. My brother-in-law is the Secretary of State. And to you, I represent the full authority of the government of the United States and the president. Fuck him, too. Bravo, sir. I've had about enough of your shit, too, Billy. You silly son of a bitch. Considered by many historians to be the biggest nail in the coffin for the new Hollywood movement was the lead balloon that was 1981's Heaven's Gate, which flopped so hard it pretty much killed the studio that produced it. Directed by Michael Camino, the film had a cast of heavy hitters, including Christopher Walken, Jeff Bridges, and Chris Christopherson. The film portrayed a fictional conflict during the real Johnson County War in Wyoming, 
It went tens of millions of dollars over its original $11.6 million budget, ran behind schedule almost immediately, was hit with animal abuse controversy, and was led by the increasingly obsessive and controlling Camino. Though not proven, a popular legend circling this film's production is that on the sixth day of shooting, it was already five days behind schedule. The resulting over three and a half hour long film only grossed about $3.5 million at the box office. United Artists, the studio that had produced the film, the studio that had been founded by the likes of Charlie Chaplin, D.W. Griffith, Douglas Fairbanks, and Mary Pickford, the studio that had in recent years released Academy Award-winning Best Picture winners, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and Midnight Cowboy, was purchased and eventually absorbed by MGM in 1981. As the remaining aging studio heads retired or passed away, they were replaced by New Blood, who had made the indie films of the 60s become the mainstream ones of the 70s. This change in leadership was also brought on, in some cases, due in part to the studios being bought up by multinational corporations, like Gulf and Western, Transamerica, and Kinney National Services. This shifted the decisions on what got made from the tastes of one studio figurehead to a more cold corporate approach involving boardrooms and marketing reports. The new presidents of the studios had to consider the shareholders, do risk analysis, and other businessy things I could continue on about but would rather not bore you to tears. While film had always had a commercial side, this is the first time the scales would tip in the other direction focusing more on the money-making potential of a project than its merit as an art piece. This was also when the role of the agent changed from merely representing their talent to actually being a driving force in how a film got made. General Kenobi, years ago you served my father in the Clone Wars. Now he begs you to help him in his struggle against the Empire. I regret that I am unable to present my father's request to you in person, but my ship has fallen under attack, and I'm afraid my mission to bring you to Alderaan has failed. I have placed information vital to the survival of the Rebellion into the memory systems of this R2 unit. My father will know how to retrieve it. You must see this droid safely delivered to him on Alderaan. This is our most desperate hour. Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You're my only hope. Escapist films, like those of Steven Spielberg and George Lucas, were getting very popular in the late 70s and early 80s. Their early films focused less on the social unrest and socio-political events that had shaped the 60s and 70s like their new Hollywood cinema counterparts had, and more on providing escapism with films like Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Star Wars, and the Indiana Jones franchise. Immensely financially successful, studios leaned more toward making these films than the independent features that had, in some cases, saved them from bankruptcy and began churning out these big-budget, mainly sci-fi skewing pictures. The ship is now resting exactly where it landed two hours ago, and so far there is no sign of life from inside it. Troops have been rushed across the Potomac River from Fort Myer and have thrown a cordon around the ship. They are supported by tanks, artillery, and machine guns. Behind the police lines, there's a huge crowd of curiosity seekers. The army has taken every precaution to meet any emergency which may develop. Every eye, every weapon is trained on the ship. It's been that way for two hours, and the tension is just beginning 
Just a minute, ladies and gentlemen. I think something is happening. What had originally started as anxiety over the fallout of the usage of the atomic bomb during World War II, mixed with the fear of a nuclear war, audiences turned their eyes towards the skies and sci-fi films slowly rose up in popularity. This trend began with 1951's The Day the Earth Stood Still, 1953's War of the Worlds, and from Japan a year later, Godzilla. As special effects improved, so did the films. By the 1970s, films like the Planet of the Apes franchise, which was heavily reliant on prosthetic makeup, and of course the first installment of Star Wars, which took CGI to an entirely different level than had previously been used, the demand for these escapist films drastically increased the popularity of the genre. The ability to create completely new worlds and creatures greatly appealed to audiences, allowing extraordinary, fantastical images to grace the screen. These advancements made to create these images greatly changed the technology of how a film could be made and eventually the machines that were used to capture the moving image. Marty, shh, you'll scare the fish. But we're missing the big football Relax. game. Relax, my VHS home video recorder is taping it right now. Terrific. Watch. Terrific. But suppose it's over three hours. Relax. Panasonic VHS tapes up to four hours of sports, movie specials on one cassette. Wow. This VHS is for me. You caught the whole game. Best catch of the day. Yeah. VHS, the four-hour system from Panasonic and other leading companies. Television wasn't done with the motion pictures yet. The 1970s and 80s saw the mass production of the technology to view home movies using devices that hooked up to their televisions. Betamax was one of the earliest examples of this, but it could not compete with the VHS. A VHS could hold most films with its two-hour capacity and, like most things that tend to come out on top, cheaper than Betamax. VHS would win the video format war and become the standard for home viewing until the early 2000s. Studios began releasing their old films on VHS in order to be rented at specialty stores like your Blockbuster or Hollywood Video. Films that may not have done well during a theatrical run were having second lives as a home video. Eventually, there were even films made for the sole purpose of a video release, a precursor to the modern-day VOD film. By the 2000s, the era of VHS was coming to an end. Replaced by DVDs, the VHS market was pretty much dead by 2003. DVDs had a higher image quality than their predecessor and provided extra footage and commentaries that was previously unavailable to the consumer. You read the Bible, Grim? Yes! Well, there's this passage I got memorized. Sort of fits this occasion. Ezekiel 25, 17. The path of the righteous man is beset on all sides by the inequities of the selfish and the tyranny of evil men. Blessed is he who in the name of charity and goodwill shepherds the weak through the valley of darkness, for he is truly his brother's keeper and the finder of lost children. And I will strike down upon thee with great vengeance and furious anger, those who attempt to poison and destroy my brothers. And you will know my name is the Lord 
upon thee. With studios primarily spending money on big-budget escapist films, independent filmmakers, like their 60s counterparts, struggled to find funding. Eventually, they would land at small up-and-coming studios like New Line Cinema, and these new filmmakers gave rise to a second wave of independent cinema in the 1990s. Spike Lee, Quentin Tarantino, and Steven Soderbergh churned out modern classics like Do the Right Thing, Pulp Fiction, and Kafka, which found audiences despite the significantly smaller budgets of a Jurassic Park or a Back to the Future. The movement starting with this batch of filmmakers has endured to this day, despite the big-budget films of the major studios they still compete against. As mentioned earlier, computer-generated imagery had been around for decades. The first usage was implemented in the opening credits of Hitchcock's 1958 film Vertigo, but began to boom in the late 80s, despite two early failures of the medium with 1982's Tron and 1984's The Last Starfighter. Despite these two major setbacks, studios still strived to improve on the medium in the hopes of prying the youth away from film's most recent adversary, the video game console. By 1995, CGI had reached animation with the first fully computer-animated film, Toy Story. The studios jumped at it. It was cheaper than building huge sets, or traveling to a distant locale. With CGI beginning to become more and more prevalent in the 2000s, critics, not unlike their Cahiers du Cinema counterparts, began lamenting the loss of artistry with the derivative reliance on CGI. Even in the most frivolous of scenarios, prioritizing spectacle over story or plot. But, especially in the modern film industry, money talks, and since the top 30 highest grossing films of all time not adjusted for inflation, are either heavily reliant on CGI or are computer-generated animation, this trend isn't likely to go away anytime soon. Another advancement of the digital age was digital cinema. Instead of using light to photochemically create an image on film stock, digital cinema created images electronically which became a possibility with the invention of the Sony HD cam in 1998. 2002's Star Wars Episode II, Attack of the Clones, became the first blockbuster to be shot in an entirely digital format. Dozens of camera companies soon made their own, including the Panavision Genesis, the Red One, and the Airy Alexa. While many cinema purists dislike the look of digital film, the amount of flexibility and money saved in the editing room cannot be ignored. Additionally, the images do not degrade over time as with a film print, making digital cinema integral for film preservation. While movies are still shot on film today, four of the nine 2019 films for Best Picture were primarily shot with film stock, digital filmmaking rules modern cinema for now. But I know the truth. There's no going back. You've changed things forever. Then why do you want to kill me? <laughs> I don't, don't want to kill you. What would I do without you? Go back to ripping off mob dealers? No, 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 you, you complete me. You're garbage, you kills for money. Don't talk like one of them, you're not. Even if you'd like to be. Depending on where you live, you've probably not been in a movie theater in the last five months or so. But if you've been in one the last 10 years, 
I don't have to tell you what the trends have been. It's superhero movies, remakes, and sequels. Nostalgia rules the day. With the financial success of the Marvel Cinematic Universe in the 2010s, the box office has been utterly dominated by these big-budget CGI juggernauts. Other studios have been diligently searching for their cinematic universes, diving deep into their libraries to varying degrees of success. For example, Universal's planned Dark Universe, revamping their classic monster movies, was dead on arrival with the release of the widely panned box office bomb that was 2017's The Mummy. While there has been major pushback from other filmmakers and performers in recent years against these films, notably Martin Scorsese, the revenues speak for themselves. Audiences like these big-budget films. It's putting asses in seats, so the studios are likely to keep making them. DVDs, and eventually the higher-def format Blu-ray, while still around today, have to contend with the digital streaming platforms. What began with Netflix in 2006 is today, in 2020, the largest format for consuming media. The youth dictate the overall trends, and this generation grew up with the internet in their homes and now has the world's knowledge, and by extension the world's entertainment, in their pockets, making them less likely to spend their money to go to the movies, despite the popularity of the big-budget film. Naturally, as in the past, the studios want a piece of this action, and many have launched their own streaming platforms, Disney+, HBO Max, Peacock, CBS All Access. The list goes on and on and is likely to continue to do so. Personally, I have just about used every free trial I could during the pandemic, especially after I started working on this podcast. While we are just starting to see the apex of what some are referring to as the streaming wars, they will sink or swim based on their audience. With a worldwide pandemic these last few months, which currently has no end in sight, and the early successful revenue numbers of digital theatrical releases, studios like Universal are now planning to release films nearly concurrently on digital streaming with its release in the movie theaters. While at the time of recording this, Movie theaters are still closed in California, where I am located. This change in the release pipeline has some industry insiders believing that the movie theater may become more of a novelty than it was even 10, 15 years ago. For me personally, as long as the theater exists, they've got a patron in me. But for the consumer market as a whole, only time will tell. This concludes our very fast, very brief history of film. Next week, I want to cover some of the international film histories and movements that I didn't get to within these first two episodes, but that I think are vital in terms of going over the basics. As always, there will be corresponding images posted on all social media. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media on Twitter at Tinsel underscore Factory, Instagram at Tinsel Factory Pod, on Facebook at The Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at tinselfactorypod at gmail.com. All of my sources, as well as some recommended viewing, are in the show notes. I added where you can stream the films if possible. Please note that this is based on the U.S., so international availability may differ. I do as much research as I can, given how much time I have. I write and produce these episodes in the span of about a week. 
So if I got anything wrong, please let me know and I will correct it in a future episode. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, that's a wrap. <laughs>